All right, well, last week we looked at uh, Matthew 14, 1 through 21, uh, which is basically the beheading of John the Baptist and the feeding of the 5,000 men plus women and children. What did John the Baptist lose his head over? Over what? No. John the Baptist lost his head for some reason. Yeah, what, what did he preach against Malachi? What was Herod doing that he was preaching against? Do you know? Yeah, he was sinful. Yeah. Yeah. There's something specific, though, that he was really angry about. Anna? Yeah, he was committing adultery. He was involved in something he shouldn't have been involved in according to Levitical law. And, um,. Not only that, we saw from, uh, from Luke that he was rebuked for all his evils that he was doing, not just for this relationship the Levitical law was against. Um, and why, oh, originally he was put in prison, right? Why was he ultimately beheaded, though? Who asked for his head on the platter? Yeah, Herodias because she had held something against John the Baptist for preaching against her relationship with Herod, the Tetrarch. And, uh, but we saw that really the reason why that came to happen was because of Herod's own lust, his own sinfulness, and watching his stepdaughter dance before him in a wicked way, and that caused him to offer her whatever she wanted, basically. And her, she went to her mother, and her mother asked for John the Baptist's head in the platter. And to feed him the 5,000, Jesus demanded the impossible of the disciples. And did he know uh, what he was going to do before he demanded this of them? He did know what he was going to do. Okay. And uh, what ended up happening with these fish and these loaves of bread? What's that, Daniel? Pass out to the people. Did they have enough? Did they have, yeah, multiply. Did they have any left over? Yeah, they had more left over than they started with in the first place. So we can see when God demands the impossible of us, he gives us the power, the ability to accomplish it. So when Jesus demanded the impossible of the apostles, he wasn't being unjust with them. He was simply looking to see where they were, who, they were going to, who or what they would look to. We look to their own natural physical means, which was limited, which they could not meet this impossible demand, or to look to him through whom the impossible demand could be met. And um, we'll see if they actually got it here and in, in, in this week. And um, Okay, let's go ahead and start in verse 22, and we'll read through verse 36. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat to, be, to go before him to the other side, while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now on the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer. 
It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Peter had come down out of the boat, and when Peter had come, out, come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. When he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the man of that place recognized him, they sent out into all that surrounding region, brought to him all who were sick, and begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. As many as touched it were made perfectly well. Okay, so Jesus, after he had fed the 5,000 men plus women and children, it was time for them to leave. And I think we saw from John 6 last week, what was the reason why Jesus decided to make them leave? Do you remember that? I'll read it to you from verse 15 of John 6. Therefore, when Jesus perceived they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. The people were always suffering from this pharisaical understanding of the Messiah. This misunderstanding that the Messiah was coming to be an earthly king at that point in time to deliver them from the captivity of the Romans. And when Jesus saw that, that was manifesting itself, he decided to tell them to leave. And, uh, but he had just done a miracle in their midst. And you know his miracle, we talked about his miracles before. What's one of the reasons why Jesus gave these miracles to the Jewish people? Prophecy to be filled, okay. Who is he trying to show them he was? Messiah. Yeah, he's trying to show them I'm the Messiah. And uh, so Jesus made them go away, and uh, he went out to the mountain by himself. And we see in John 6.15, he was the mountaintop. And um, he basically made the disciples go into their boats, and this gives the disciples time to think about these things. Now this is right before evening time, because we see that Jesus is alone at evening time. And the fourth watch of the night is 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. in the morning. Okay? The disciples were out in the boat for a long time, you know, dealing with this wind. And if you remember, when we went back to when remember Jesus was sleeping in a boat back in Matthew 8, I believe. What was the reason I gave it these, these strong winds would come upon that land all of a sudden? Remember what the reasons were with the Sea of Galilee, that sea? All of a sudden, yes. So these storms would come all of a sudden because the whole Sea of Galilee basically was surrounded by ranges and mountain ranges and all of a sudden these winds would swoop down in there and cause these violent storms. Uh, and so they were in the middle of this, and they were, they were just, they were out there for a long time. You know, probably about, uh, if we say that Jesus walked by them at 3 a.m. in the morning, they're probably out there for about nine hours. That's a long time to be, uh, you know, rowing in a boat. And so they, they had a lot of time to think about what they just saw Jesus did, and that's a good thing. And Jesus, of course, went to be by himself, alone, uh, with God, to pray. And uh, obviously, we should be taking this example for ourselves. And as we learned long ago, back in Matthew 6, I'll read to you again, there's no, there's no reason why we can't be reminded of these things. Uh, it's a good principle to have, to remind yourself of things over and over again, uh, to kind of get these things down. Matthew 6 and verse 5. 
And when you pray, you should not be like hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues on the corners, on the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room. When you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So when you get in that secret place, I can't tell you that enough. Your whole Christian life will, be, will revolve around how much you get into the secret place. How successful you are as a Christian, living holy and being pure and walking in God's perfect will for your life will be determined by how often you get in the secret place. We can all know the general will for our life by reading the Word of God. Anyone can do that. You can spend hours reading the Bible, and that's good. But how are you going to know the specific will for your life in God's eyes? It doesn't tell Kerrigan where he's supposed to go five years from now in here. It doesn't tell me that. I must go into the secret place. How often are you getting alone in that secret place? It doesn't matter how young a Christian you are or how old of a Christian you are. How much are you getting alone in a secret place? How successful you are as a Christian will be determined by this more than anything else. By this. And so Jesus was giving us an example. And we see this all throughout the Gospels. Going to himself, being by himself, being alone in prayer with God. And if Jesus did that, how much more should we do that? How much more do we need that if Jesus did that? So now the boat was about uh, three to four miles from the land, according to John 6.19. It gives an actual numerical value there, whereas Matthew doesn't give that, and Mark says the middle of the sea uh, or around the middle of the sea. John 6.19 says three to four miles out. Now, if you were to go to the maps in the back of your Bible, I'm not sure if you guys have them or not. I know we've done this before. But the miracle that it did, the feeding of the 5,000, happened around Tiberias. It was on the southwestern part of the Sea of Galilee. And um, the disciples left from there, the Tiberias area, and went towards the Gennesaret Capernaum area, which is in the northwestern part of the Sea of Galilee. Okay? And the distance between those two places is about nine miles, nine nautical miles, okay, over water. And so they were about halfway there after about nine hours. So they, got, they went about four miles in nine hours. That's not very good. And so they were being tossed to and fro by the waves because the wind was contrary. The storm had come upon them. And the fourth watch of the night, 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., Jesus went to them. Now, if we were to go to Mark 6 for a second, We'll get some more details here about uh, Jesus walking on the land. Now, Jesus now is walking three to four miles. And sometimes it takes a while to walk three or four miles. You know, a few hours of 15, 10, 15 minute mile walking, it's going to take a while. And, but in Mark 6, in verse 48, it says, Now, it says, uh, Jesus saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and would have passed them by. Would have passed them by until they saw him and were fearful, and he, he calmed their fears. But I, I think there's something to be said about this, is that in the midst of our troubles, in the midst of our problems, we are in danger of letting Jesus pass us by. Getting so caught up in our troubles getting so caught up in our problems that we miss what Jesus wants to do through them. And I'll tell you, I've had a hard time with 
you know, this is nothing compared to what Christians go through. I've had a hard time with this dumb ankle thing, man. I just want this thing off. And I have, you know, this has been ministering to me this week as I read this because I don't want Jesus to pass me by in the midst of this little struggle, little thing I'm going through here. I want Jesus to work through it. And uh, it's like when Brother Kevin, when he was going through a lot of things, going to the hospital, right? He, he saw it as an opportunity to be a minister to the nurses and the doctors. And, and when we're going through troubles, through struggles, we can't let Jesus pass us by and act, act as if he's not even there. He's there with us. We may, we may think he's sleeping in a boat like they did back in Matthew, 18, Matthew 8, but he's right there. And in the midst of our struggles, our troubles, instead of trying to take control and rowing, you're never going to get there. You may get there eventually. But guess what? When he got in the boat, what happened? They got there immediately. And so we, you know, these struggles that get in our life, these troubles we get in our life, man, I've got to keep on going and keep on going, and Jesus is passing us right by. And we're missing exactly what he wants to do in our lives. That doesn't mean that every time you have a trouble or struggle and you let Jesus intervene, that it's going to end right away. I'm not saying that by any means. But I am saying we can't let Jesus walk right by us. He, we have to, he wants to be there. We have to invite him into our troubles, invite him into our struggles, allow him to minister to us, allow him to minister to others through us in our troubles, in our struggles. Instead of getting in the flesh and trying to work it through ourselves which I've seen happen so many times. You know, God allows troubles for a reason. He really does. And we need to let him work in those troubles. So as a fourth watch, he was about to walk by them, and they saw him. They were troubled. They were fearful. Uh, they said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. And Jesus calmed their fear, saying, be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. And who was the first one to speak up? The one who's always putting his, his foot in his mouth. But, but Jesus, Jesus knew what he would become later on. This is good preparation for Peter to be a good leader later on. And Peter gets, he says, Lord, you know, just, if it's really you, let, let me come and see you. He says, come. And he begins to walk and, you know, we, we don't realize this, but there is another person who walked on water in this world besides Jesus. Peter walked on water. I mean, how many people can say that? Not many people. But what, what, did, what, did, what did Peter do? Did he, did he keep his eyes fixed on Jesus through this boistering wind and these waves and everything that was around him? Did he keep his eyes fixed on Jesus? No. He turned aside to what? All the things going on around him. Because he took his eyes off of Jesus, the author and perfecter of his faith. He lost faith and began to sink. And so in the midst of troubles, in the midst of doing the impossible for God, and he calls us to do the impossible at times, we need to keep our eyes fixed on him. Not worry about the things that are going on around us, how bad the way, no matter how bad the world gets, no matter how many people are against us. I've said this before, with, with God on our side, we're the majority every time. We have no reason to fear. We are the majority. You know, going, going back to Belshire just, just a, a couple months ago, when those people, when he pushed me off that stool and I got right back up, I felt perfect peace. But you look around me, it's perfect calamity, perfect hatred, perfect anger, all these wickedness. And if I would have gotten the flesh and would have started looking at that, I would probably would have got fearful. Because the natural man is fearful when the whole mob's against you. But the Lord can keep you at perfect peace. 
And if he would have kept his eyes fixed on you, instead of looking at it, he says that, um, in verse 30, when he saw that the wind was boisterous. It's a regular wind now, but a boisterous wind. And he was afraid and began to sink. And he said, Lord, save me. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When Jesus says, come, where to go? Wherever it may be, no matter how hard it may be, no matter how difficult it may look, where to go and to trust, as long as we keep our eyes fixed on him, he'll make a way. Even when we take our eyes fixed off of him for a second, say, Lord, save us, he'll pick us back up. He'll pick us back up, and we'll get back into the boat, and we'll get to the land eventually, where we're supposed to be going in the first place. But we need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Keep him perspective the way he's supposed to be. And we saw last time in Matthew uh, 8 when this happened. And remember in Matthew 8, Jesus was you know, kind of sleeping in the boat. He was a perfect peace in the midst of the storm. He had no problems with the storm. He, was, he knew he was the one, he was the author of the storms, and he, he knew his father who can control the storms. And uh, in Matthew 8, 27, after he rebuked the winds and the sea and there was a great calm, the men marveled, saying, Who can this be? This is Matthew 8, 27. Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? So last time, they, they didn't quite get it just yet. Who can this be? They asked themselves that question. They didn't declare who he was. They just said, who can this be? But now we have Jesus walking on water. And then he got into the boat. And we know from, from Mark and from John that he, the boat immediately made it to the land as soon as he got into the boat. And what did they do? This time, they didn't say, who can this be? They took action. What did they do? They worshipped him. Now, did Jesus reject this worship? But if he's only a prophet, as the Muslims say, he would, to have, he would have had to have rejected this, this worship. Because anytime you see in the Bible someone having a vision of an angel, maybe it's Daniel or John, and they, they begin to bow down, and they said, no, 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 don't do that. They stopped them. So if someone is a, is a prophet or an angel and you begin to worship them and they don't tell you stop it, what do they tell you about them? It tells you they're a false prophet or a fallen angel. But Jesus didn't stop them from worshiping him. I guess he deserved it, didn't he? I guess he deserved their worship. Now in Mark chapter 6 and verse 51, we have some interesting Jesus says here. Mark 6 and 51. He said, Then he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased, and they were greatly amazed. And the word greatly amazed there in the Greek literally means out of their mind. That's how amazed they were. They were out of their mind. And in themselves beyond measure and marveled. For they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. You know, this response they had right here after Jesus walked on water and the sea calmed and they made it to the shore, according to John, right immediately after they got there, after Jesus got into the boat. Yeah, that, that caused them to worship. But shouldn't the feeding of the 5,000 have done the same thing? I mean, Jesus took this little bit of food and had 5,000 men plus women. Shouldn't, shouldn't that have caused them to worship him? And maybe that's why he sent them out into the boat to let them think about these things for about nine or ten hours. They row and Row and row and row. But finally, they were getting it. They were getting it. And, it. and according to Mark, 
their hearts were hardened. Now, the word hardened there doesn't mean uh, that they were, you know, willfully not receiving it. The word hardened there uh, means literally difficulty in understanding or difficulty in comprehending. So even though they were seeing these miracles, like they weren't comprehending what was going on. They weren't understanding what was going on here. But now they were. <laughs> it took another miracle for them to finally get it and finally understand uh, what was going on there. If you were to read John, uh, or maybe it's Mark, they, they, he actually saw them from shore before he went out there in verse uh, 48. 47, it says of Mark 6, he was alone on the land. In verse 48, he said he saw them straining at rowing. So he saw them from the land before he went out there, straining at rowing. And surely if they would have called upon him then, he would have, he would have saved them then. And, but not only did they not get it about the, the food, if you were to look in John 6... You see, the other people didn't get about the food either. And um, they came, once they finally caught up to him, after, you know, he left Tiberias, went to the area of Capernaum, Gennesaret, uh, the crowd finally caught up to him, and they saw, the funny thing is they knew the disciples had left before him. They knew those boats were gone. But that one boat that Jesus should have took was, was still there. So they, they should have thought, well, how did they get there? They kind of just let it pass them by. And then uh, in verse 25, John 6 says, Rabbi, when did you come here? And he doesn't even respond to the question. He addresses their heart condition. He says, Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, which is what he hoped they would see, because it would point to him as a Messiah, because you ate of the loaves and were filled. That's John 6.26. And John 6.27 says, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because the God, of God, because God the Father has set his seal on him. So these miracles, he's trying to get them to say, look, I am the Son of Man. I am the one who can give you everlasting life. And the disciples finally got it after they got off the, you know, on that boat, but the crowd still weren't getting it. They still weren't getting it. They weren't coming back because they saw the signs and thought he was the Messiah. They were coming back because they had their fill. They ate and had their fill. So Jesus is constantly trying to turn the disciples and this crowd over to a spiritual understanding of what is really going on here. And oftentimes we can miss that too. Because so caught in the natural, we miss what's going on in the spiritual. We miss what's going on there. We have to stay. We have to stay with, with God's mindset, have the mind of Christ at all times during these situations. So we can see what does he want to do? Instead of looking at just in the natural and saying, you know, what can I do here, what can I do there, what can I do here, what can I do there, and doing all of it yourself, think about what God wants to do here and have the mind of Christ through it, a spiritual understanding. And we see that as he came to the land of Gennesaret, which is just, uh, just south of Capernaum, um, the men of that place recognized him, they sent out into all the surrounding region, brought to him all who were sick, and begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment as many as touched it were made perfectly well. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand. This is the second time this has happened here because the woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years touched the hem of his garment and was healed. These people all had the same idea here. There is no 
superstition here that Jesus' garments had some magical powers. All right? But God was willing to meet them where they were because they were giving glory to Jesus by getting healed by him. There's no magical powers in Peter's shadow. There's no magical powers in this handkerchief that Paul sent. The power's in God. And um, that's why if you were to read through church history, there's lots of people who have these things called relics. They think they have this, uh, the garment of Jesus or a, a sliver of the cross of Jesus or the bones of, of Thomas. Or, and these things have no magical powers. God's the one who has the power. But he decided to meet the people where they were and their understanding and healed them anyway. That's how compassionate God was upon these people. Was meeting where they were and their understanding and healed them anyway. All with the view of trying to show these people, I am the Messiah. Trust in me. I can give you the bread that leads to everlasting life. The living water that will come up in you. Okay. The Jewish garb, the clothing that they would wear. The tassels. The tassels and all the stuff that was on their garments would also represent the authority they held. And that, by saying we'll touch the hem of his garment, they're actually saying we believe that he's God because if we touch that, we're recognizing his authority. Mm -hmm. And that was important to us. But they are recognizing he would have been wearing a seat seat, which are the tassels. Or the blue in Numbers 13. Recommends the law, uh, reference the law of God, right? Reference the law of God. So there's a lot they're recognizing. And no, they don't recognize him as Messiah, but they're recognizing him as the authority from Messiah. Mm -hmm. And that's why God's meeting where he is. Because it's their way of saying we think he's the, the. representative of God. Mm-hmm. And they may not quite understand yet that he really is God in the flesh, but they do understand enough to see that they're willing to touch his hand. Feel free to add or ask questions or offer objections. Uh, I'm adding on verse 33. I think it makes sense what you were saying how the, they worship him. That's good. So he's not just man. That's what you're saying. That that's what it's showing. That he's he's an eternal being. He's an eternal being. That's good. Very good insight, John. The understanding part is really important, too, because you'll see in the Old Testament when Ezra stood up and read the law, when Nehemiah stood up and read the law, it said, for those who could understand. And not all, everyone even understood it back then. But even in Matthew chapter 13, you'll, if you research that in your Bible, pretty much any rendition, you'll see the word understanding, understanding, understanding. And it goes to show that when you're out evangelizing, the importance of getting someone to understand who Christ is is the ultimate key. And you have to recognize they don't understand it all. At most, 
of Americans, Christians included, do not understand who Christ really is. So Matthew really is after understanding, understanding, understanding. And he was not only getting his disciples to understand it, he's constantly getting, trying to get us to understand. Well, I mean, I'd probably go to the Greek word behind it and then go to other times where it said it's, you're worshiping God. And it's the same word there. Then are we just giving service to God now or are we actually worshiping God? Now, the, the, the word behind it, I don't remember what it is, but no, worship and service are synonymous. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, people in the Old Testament temple, they were having service to God, but they were worshiping God at the same time. And um, he, he, they declared him as the Son of God. There was a definite article there. Uh, and you know you can go to other passages too. You got John uh, twenty twenty eight. Thomas said an answer to him, "My Lord and my God." You know Thomas said to Jesus, and Jesus didn't correct him. Jesus said, "Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed." Believed what? That he is Lord and God. Blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. So the Jehovah Witnesses aren't blessed because they don't believe. You know you can also go to Hebrews, beginning of Hebrews. Uh, those are good passages to go to. Um, Yeah, I mean, Jehovah's Witnesses have their own Bible, the New World Translation. And I like to see how, how they translate this word here in this passage. It's, it's and, and then how they translate that same word in other passages when we're talking about God. And see if they're actually being consistent about it. You know, the same thing with, with Sarks. We've talked about that before. Same word in uh, Revelation 16. Dear God, give glory to worship him. Right. May the heaven and the Right. Probably like you said, it's used other other places that they wouldn't, uh, you know, probably translate it the same. But you can't twist the word God perfectly. You know what I mean? Right. Twist one part of it, and then they forget to twist this part of it. I can't remember exactly what it was, but I think it's in the 
John 1-1. One, one. Yeah. Tells me they can't be trusted. Yeah. It's from God. It's also Revelation 1, where it says on verse 5, uh, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to, whom, to him who loved us and washed us of our, from our sins in his own blood, has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, he just said his God and Father. But let's read on. The old is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, the Jews. And all the tribes of earth will mourn because of him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. That's Jesus talking there. You know, so you see a picture of the Trinity there, at least two parts of the Trinity, the Father and the Son, because Jesus says that uh, God the Father is his God and Father in verse 6. And then verse 8, Jesus calls himself, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, uh, the one who is and who was and who is to come. That's about his eternality there. Who is, who was, and who is to come. The Almighty. The Almighty. Yeah. They have a weird way of explaining this. They saw him and they turned around and it was God. You know, and it's just weird. Yeah. But verse 17 would go along with, it, with worshiping him. Right. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me and saying to me, Do not be afraid, I am the first one. That's Jesus talking. Right, but he didn't tell him to stop. He didn't tell him to stop. So yeah. He didn't rebuke him for right. falling at his feet. And, and that's kind of what I that's kind of what I picture in Matthew. I mean, it doesn't say that, but worshiping him, I don't think it's just just them saying, "Truly, you're the Son of God." But they probably were bowed low, at least had their heads bowed down, you know. And um, so that's what I picture. Yeah, you want to dig a hole in the ground sometimes, man. The presence of God is so mighty there. It's a it's a double double edged sword. You want to be there, but you want to dig a hole in the ground too. Get away from it. What are you going to say, brother? John? No, I was just looking at you had mentioned it earlier in the teaching, uh, and uh, not this particular verse, but this concept that's outlined in Revelation 19. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> You're saying uh, in verse 10, I fell at his feet to worship him. He said to me, See that you do not do that. I'm your fellow servants, but your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus worship God. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Right, right. Amen. Yes. Yeah, that, that's what you see. I mean, I think Daniel might have done that too. And I think earlier on in Revelation, even that might have happened too, mm-hmm. a couple of different times. Twice. Yeah, yeah. But it was, it was different angels, though. I think. Yeah, I think it was different messengers. So he was, <laughs> he was just trying to cover all the bases, you know. I mean, put yourself in his shoes for a second, man. That's some pretty awesome and awesome, awesome things not. going on. Yeah, these angels. Are and not so. Yeah. With diapers on, they got wings or like little babies. No, I don't think so. <laughs> you know, so you see in the cartoons. You know, when I was growing up, Ding. and you sit on the clouds. Oh. Right, that's like a conscience there. And some of them are, are they're not they don't look like us. Some of them have six wings, like they see in Isaiah six. Covering their eyes, covering their feet, covering their hands. Yeah. 
These are pretty amazing creatures. So. See, Satan is the one who would not rebuke them. Mm -hmm. And so many people are bound before him. Right. And he's receiving worship that says, I will be the most high and lost the worship. Yeah, so Jesus, you really only have two options. You either say he is who he says he is, truly the Son of God, the Son of God, or he's a fallen angel, or a false teacher, false prophet, something to that effect. You can't have it both ways. You can't have any middle ground. What they tried to say. John one more. Well, what the first thing he said, what you, you said he said was kind of true. He isn't God in the sense that he's God the Father. That's where people get confused. It's a personhood issue. He's not God in the sense that he's the Father. He is God in the sense that he's the Son or the Word. That's the distinction there. Right. For Abraham was I am. I am. I am. Right. I am. He says, oh, that got really messed up. That got really messed up in translation. What? He said I am over and over there. Right. Yeah, it's interesting how the context, yeah, the I am is smaller, but in this case, I am is. That's what it means. It means I am. In fact, um, let's see, where was it here? In verse 27 of Matthew 14, there's one little thing here I wanted to share with you, where it says, it is I there. An actual literal translation would be I am, right there. In Matthew uh, uh, 14, 27, where Jesus said, you know, they were scared that he was a ghost, said, be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. The word it is I there would literally be translated I am, I am. Yeah, be of good cheer, I am, do not be afraid. That would be the literal translation of it. So, Jesus is constantly trying to show people who he was. Jewish people, except for those who didn't want to, as we saw a couple weeks back, a few weeks back. He hardened their heart. He, he blinded them through parables. In the resurrection, we get hope we had him, him laying himself down and then picking himself up again. You know, the coming death and the victory of the death, like that shit and sin, and that should be enough to prove that he's supernatural and oh, yeah. he is God. Yeah. <coughs> Amen. All right, does anyone else have anything they want to add or questions they want to ask?